0: We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Today from Corpus Christi, we welcome Lynn Comstock. She's vaccinating people in the Lone Star State and will take a quick break to talk with us. AMA author Deb Ryder reports on vaccination rates in Indiana. The founder of Axia Solutions, Susan Gatehouse, explains how to avoid billing errors during the pandemic. Lori Johnson has the Tuesday Coding Report and Dr. Ronald Hirsch is at the news desk. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor and the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, Chuck Buck.
1: Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 450th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today by the ICD University Bookstore. And good morning, Erica.
2: Thank you, Chuck, and good morning, everyone.
1: We conclude our exclusive series here on Talk Ten Tuesday, Vaccination Nation, and our special guest, as you know, Lim Constock down there in Corpus Christi, Texas, is with us today. And you might remember, Erica, that she was scheduled last week, but that huge winter storm that ravaged Texas knocked out her power and her internet. So she's with us today.
2: Yes, and the storm continues to wreak havoc. It hampered vaccine deliveries and vaccination clinics alike.
1: Indeed. How has the storm impacted where you're being a volunteer inoculator?
2: Well, we had to shorten our vaccine clinic last week due to the brutal cold, but we didn't have any other issues.
1: Good to hear. Today we're reporting on vaccination rates. Deb Greider reports on vaccination rates in Indiana. And Susan Gatehouse reports on how her home state of Georgia is handling vaccinations. As a
2: country, we still have a long way to go to achieve herd immunity.
1: We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ron Hirsch, who was at the Talk 10 Tuesday news desk.
0: The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by MedLearn Media. Looking for the correct compliance answer? Sign up for MedLearn Media's Compliance Question of the Week, a weekly newsletter that answers all your questions on cardiology, laboratory, pharmacy, radiology, respiratory, and general coding.
3: Here now is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. You know, Instead of the news, I'm going to share a coding story. This morning, I got an email from a hospital with the following question. Our surgeons, whose patients are in the bundled payment program have notified us that they can schedule their joint replacement patients who are Medicare as observation. I've been unable to find any information on this and have reached out to their bundled payment facilitator without response. Can you please let me know if you've heard of this? So first of all, why is their facilitator not answering their email? That's just not acceptable. But what about their question? Well, the surgeons, surprisingly, are partially correct. When these bundles were first introduced for joint arthroplasty, the CMS specifications limited participation to only inpatient surgeries. But at the time, both hip and knee replacement were on the inpatient only list, so it was not an issue. In 2018, CMS took total knee off the list, but they lagged behind in adjusting the bundles for a couple years. So if a knee replacement was done as outpatient, the episode of care did not fall into the bundle and there were no shared savings and the orthopedists were pissed off. And we all know no one wants a pissed off surgeon, especially orthopedists, most of whom were Division I athletes in college. CMS has now adjusted this and any joint replacement surgery initiates the bundle, inpatient or outpatient. So the orthopedists are happy again and have set down their scalpels. But placing the patient in the hospital's observation is not correct. Observation for a scheduled surgery patient should never be ordered preoperatively. If the surgeon's ordering observation before surgery, they're expecting a complication to occur and I would not want that surgeon to do my surgery. And if the surgeon does order observation preoperatively and those hours get put on the claim, you'll be submitting an improper claim. And as Northwestern Medical Center found out, the OIG does not like that. So there are two solutions. Best is to teach your surgeons to schedule the surgeries outpatient and then only order observation after surgery if it's indicated, or teach the coders that if they see a pre-op observation order, they should just ignore it and not bill observation hours. This fun never ends. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Vice President of R1RCM,
1: and he's a permanent panelist on Monitor Monday. It's Tuesday. It's February 23rd, 2021, and our nation has reached a grim milestone. As of today, 500,310 souls have been lost to the deadly coronavirus. You're listening to the live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday Standby.
0: Acute heart failure is quite common among hospitalized patients, yet it's often difficult for coders and clinical documentation integrity specialists to recognize and fully understand. No big deal? Wrong. This deficiency makes your facility a potential target for payer DRG and clinical validation, and it increases your risk of adverse auditor action. During an ICD-10 monitor webcast, physician and health information management expert Dr. Beth Wolf helps you understand acute heart failure. Her presentation covers what it is and what it is not. Not all volume overload or congestion is acute heart failure, and not every acute heart failure patient presents with pulmonary edema causing respiratory distress. Register to attend Acute Heart Failure, Validating DRGs and Clinical Documentation. The webcast is Wednesday, March 3rd. Register now at the ICD University Bookstore.
1: Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori.
4: Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. March is almost here, and that means that the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting is coming up. The March meeting will be virtual on March 9th and 10th, beginning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time until 5 p.m. Um, there's a lunch break that's scheduled from 12.30 p.m. until 1.15 p.m., I have posted the tentative agenda uh, under the resources tab with information on how to connect and how to listen shown on the screen. This is a great way to earn free AHIMA and AAPC continuing edu- credit, education credits. The March meeting has a packed agenda beginning with ICD-10, C- ICD-10 PCS topics. These topics include Transfusion of pathogen-reduced, cryoprecipitated fibrinogen complex. Application of topical agent for non-excisional scar removal. Application of bioengineered skin construct. Computer-aided detection for CT the head and pulmonary angiography. Transthoracic echocardiography with computer-aided image acquisition. Tissue oxygen saturation imaging of GI tract, mechanical thrombectomy using intermittent aspiration, transcatheter replacement of pulmonary valve, combined thoracic arch replacement and descending thoracic aorta restriction, patient-specific intervertebral body fusion, concurrent measurement of mRNA PCR test and detection of antibodies, administration of a number of medications, which may not be reviewed during the meeting, but your comments may be sent. There are a total of 34 topics on the ICD-10 PCS agenda. A number of these topics have also applied for the new technology add-on payment for fiscal year 22, which begins October 1, 2021. Next week, I'll talk about the ICD-10-CM agendas. And, Erica, I know that you will be listening, and if you want to comment, you will need to join the session through Zoom. Back to you.
2: You bet I'll be there. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior health care consultant for Revenue Cycle
1: Solutions, LLC. We're concluding our series this morning, Vaccination Nation, and joining us this morning is the founder and CEO of Axia Solutions, Susan Gatehouse. Susan has two reports this morning. We're going to begin with her report on how to avoid billing errors with the new COVID-19 codes. And then Susan is going to tell us about the vaccination rates in her home state of Georgia. Here now is Susan Gatehouse.
5: Thank you, Chuck, and good morning to all. As Chuck stated, before we move into the vaccination numbers in Georgia, I wanted to briefly discuss the experience. When using new the new ICD-10-CM code as of January 1, the Z20.822, which is contact with and suspected exposure to COVID-19. Previously, this was coded to Z20.828, exposure to other communicable viruses. So it's somewhat of a generic code. It's important to pay attention to the specific dates pertaining to the use of these codes. As stated previously, January 1 was the onset of the new code Z20.822. Payers may require a split bill by year when the claim spans both calendar years as it relates to the two codes mentioned above or mentioned previously, the two Z codes. This is not an official payer guidance. However, providers are discovering this is the case for the majority of payers. When there is an overlap in dates and an ICBT is ICD-10 CM code assignment is outside the designated time frame. it is not uncommon for the claim to result in a denial. So for in- instance, if a patient had a pre-op test performed in the latter part of December and had the COVID um, test, it would have reported to Z20.828. And in January, that same patient after the pre-op had an outpatient surgery performed. Typically, these codes are rolled into one claim and billed as one encounter. Because the January 1 edition of the Z20.822, the claim will likely require split billing. This is an example of an outpatient surgery that I just mentioned. We may see this on the observation side as well. So those are two situations that I think it's very important to be aware of the denials related to these codes so they can be remediated. I am not in any way, shape, or form telling anyone to go out and start split billing all your all your January, December claims, but I do think it's really important to be cognizant of what happens after the the claim or after the encounter is coded and check with your billing department and determine are there denials in this area that could be remediated that is a common thing that we've seen but again there is no specific payer guidance on this so it's it's not mandatory but again there are denials resulting from it from the majority of, of payers so with that i'll now move into the vaccine rollout in Georgia, it's been relatively successful thus far. It's an evolving and ongoing process as we, we know that most states are encountering per phase one of the state vaccine rollout, adults 65 and older, their caregivers, health care workers, employees at long-term care facilities, police officers, as well as firefighters and paramedics are being vaccinated. More than 1.5 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines have been administered across the state, with roughly 2 million Georgians currently still eligible who have yet to be vaccinated. 2.1 million vaccines have been designated for Georgia from the federal government as of February 15th. 1.9 1.9 million vaccine doses have been shipped to medical facilities in the state of Georgia. So here's how the process works, just to give you some framework when you hear about doses being shipped but not being given, etc. cetera. This, this was helpful to me. So once a medical facility is accepted as a vaccine provider, the facility then requests the number of doses they need based on the community they are serving. According to Georgia Department of Health, public health, more than 1900 providers are enrolled to administer the vaccine in Georgia at this time. The Georgia Department of Health has recently begun publishing a detailed vaccine board on their website. So I would encourage, encourage any of you from Georgia, please, um, use this as a, as a source of information because the dashboard breaks down both statewide and individual county vaccine numbers, and most importantly, provides a complete list of Georgia vaccine providers. Back to you, Erica.
2: Thanks, Susan. That was Susan Gatehouse, the founder and CEO of Axia Solutions.
1: And you can read both of her reports in today's edition. Of the icd-10 monitor news we continue with our vaccination nation with a report from ama author deb greider who reports on the vaccination rates in her home state of indiana good morning deb greider good morning
6: chuck good morning everyone glad to be here again uh... first of all indiana um... has been rolling out the vaccine since uh... the end of december and um... as of yesterday we had one million four hundred eighty seven thousand four hundred doses distributed to the state Um, Our population is 6.8 million people in the state of Indiana alone. And the doses that have been administered, the first dose is about 13%, 893,246. This is as of this morning. And the second dose, uh, 6% of the population, 440,028 people have have received the second dose of the vaccine. So currently, the distributed vaccine percentage is about 85.37%. Um, we have more than 50% of Indiana residents who have already been scheduled for the vaccine. And when we're looking at populations, age groups, um, right now we're open. They actually opened up a phase 1B this morning to residents who are 60 and older. Um, Our 80-plus population, the first dose is about 18.3%, whereas the second dose is 23.5%. When we're looking at the 70-79% age group, we've got 32.3% first dose and 22.7 second dose, and then our 60 to 69 population is about 20.9% of the first dose and 11.3 of the second dose, so um, we are progressing with our vaccine rollout. Uh, When we're looking at who's eligible, people who are now 60 years or older, any healthcare workers, first responders, which includes firefighters, policemen, volunteers who work in long-term care facilities, uh, residents of long-term care uh, care facilities have been have been getting vaccinated in Indiana. Um, they are not allowing teachers of some states of any age to get the vaccine unless they fit into that age group. And our next group, which we don't have a date yet for rollout, and we did delay our um, our vaccine rollout because of the inclement weather. We had, I know where I live, we had about a foot of snow last week. Not as bad as Texas, of course, but um, you know, and it 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 hampered delivery. Our next group will be 50 and older and anyone who is under 50 with pre-existing conditions. So one thing I have to mention is that the Indiana Department of Health and our governor, Governor Holcomb in Indiana, have done a really good job of communicating vaccine availability. And there are actually three ways people can sign up. Uh, First of all, you can call 211, which is the Indiana State Department of Health hotline, or you can go online to the Indiana Department of Health, which uh, has a portal. Um, I actually registered through the portal when I registered for my first dose of the vaccine. And the problem was is that you have to select your location first and then your date, it pops up what dates are available. Whereas in my area, There are nine locations around me, and I would have preferred to select the date first, and then I would have gone to whatever location. So that's one of the problems I see with the portal that can hamper people. People are confused about it, or the Internet uh, access is limited, or they don't have a computer. Call 911. That's the best way to register for your vaccine. So um, from my personal experience, um, you know, you don't have to wait long to get a vaccine. We don't have lines of cars where you get the vaccine while you're in your car. You actually go in. You have an appointment. It takes about 30 to 45 minutes. Um, There's other sites available in Indiana like our Kroger Pharmacies, Walmart, Sam's Clubs. Uh, When you register online through our portal through our Department of Health, it actually links you to their website to register. So the Department of Health doesn't uh, register people for that. And then the other thing that I find is interesting is that we have V-safe, which is part of the CDC for people to check in after they've had the vaccine, if they're having any problems, to let us know how they're doing. Um, So the CDC, if you sign up within six weeks after you had your second dose of the vaccine, if any problems occur, they can track that. Back to you,
7: Erica.
2: Thank you, Deb. I just wanted to um, point out that I think you accidentally said 911 the second time. Um, She meant 211. Um, that was AMA author Deb Greider. Deb is a senior health care consultant with Karen Zupko and Associates.
1: Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you very much, Deb Greider, for that excellent report. And coming up next, our exclusive interview with the volunteer inoculator down in Corpus Christi, Texas. But first, this important message.
0: There continues to be an increase in the use of risk adjustment payment models that HIM coding and CDI professionals need to understand in order to navigate the world of hierarchical condition categories, HCCs. The best place to refresh your understanding of HCCs is during a new webcast by Gloria Ann Bryant. During part one of this two-part series, you'll learn the basics. Accurate and compliant HCC coding only happens with the strong knowledge of the basics of the Medicare Part C Risk Adjustment Payment Model. Register now to download this on-demand webcast, Learning Made Easy for Risk Adjustment and HCC's Part 1, Getting the Basics Right.
1: Texas has been ravaged by an unprecedented winter storm. It's a critical situation that has serious healthcare implications like the state's vaccination clinics. For an exclusive report on the conditions there as they relate to vaccination rates, this is Lynn Comstocks. She's a volunteer inoculator. She joined us from Corpus Christi. And Lynn, let me begin by asking you the vaccination program there in Corpus Christi, where you have been working as a volunteer, was shut down last week because of the winter storms. What's the situation like now?
7: Good morning, Chuck, and thank you for having me on Talk 10 Tuesday. Uh, the city, for the most part, has fully recovered from that immediate disaster. Uh, as far as recovery of our vaccination clinics, uh, we received our supply yesterday, good news, and are starting back today. So, like the rest of the country, we will definitely be testing our administration system this week as we ramp up and compensate for that lost week.
1: There are reports of shortages of syringes and even vaccines. Any shortages that you're experiencing down there in Corpus Christi?
7: Our public health district continues to request more vaccine allotments. And like the rest of the country, we expect our vaccine supply will continue to increase. Uh, the CDC also sends the necessary supplies with these vaccine shipments. However, they are only providing the number of syringes that accommodate the recommended amount of vaccine per vial. So in order to get that bonus dose that everyone hears about, um, we need what is known as a low deadweight syringe. And it is not easy to find these now. Um, And at the same time, it is critical to maintain the supply for our children's hospitals and other applications. So hopefully this shortage will be addressed soon.
2: Lynn, tell our audience where you're vaccinating and how that came to pass.
7: I've been a stay-at-home mom raising five girls. I'm a pharmacist. Um, But I have been on what I would call an extended leave of absence for several years. So when COVID hit, I felt really frustrated. uh, But when the vaccines came into play, I felt I could be a part of the solution. And there were two requirements I needed to be a vaccinator. Uh, One, an emergency Texas pharmacy license for the COVID response. And two, I needed to complete a pharmacist immunization certification program. It's a 20 hour course that requires an on site assessment. Uh, these are not easy to find, especially in the time of COVID. And I fortunately found one in Dallas. So I was in my car heading north for the seven hour drive two days later. So, all in all, 14 hours of driving for two actual shots into my lab partner's arm.
2: I have to tell you, Lynn, that is really crazy. That shows amazing commitment. And where we do it, it's just basically a just-in-time training and assessment. So you do it, like, on the scene. So uh, I'm really impressed that you were able to do that. That's amazing commitment.
7: Well, thank you, Erica. But it was worth it. Uh, Soon thereafter, I heard about a volunteer opportunity with our public health district, um, and they were running drive-through vaccine clinics at the county fairgrounds. So the first day I signed up was their first mega drive. Um, I pulled in around 6 a.m. and there were lanes and lanes of cars snaked around parking lots. The public health staff, they get there at 5.30 a.m. and they're doing vaccine draw-ups. We administered over 5,000 shots that day. Um, I asked people in the cars what time they had arrived. They had been there since 5 p.m. the night before, Um, but no complaints. So, Erica, how long are the clinics typically running where you're working? Is the public health staff arriving earlier, staying later? I've been wondering how these counties are affording these extra
2: manpower hours.
7: If you read
2: uh, today's ICD-10 monitor, you can actually see what I've been experiencing. But um, basically, we have... uh, um we call them mass vaccination clinics. they are not mega uh, and they 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 run from around eight thirty in the morning to six thirty p m although the the vaccinations themselves will only be given um, from ten to five forty five or so and the way the Board of Health describes it, it's all hands on deck. So the public health personnel perform vaccination functions several times a week, and then they do their regular duties in between. The EMS, pers- the EMS personnel are working on their days off, and in fact, um, on Sunday, I was kind of irritated because I wanted to be vaccinating, and I had to go out to recovery because there were a couple of uh, paramedics who were working double shifts because they're getting paid time and a half, and it's really annoying. Um, but I know that some of, uh, some of our listeners are nurses who might be interested in volunteering themselves, especially as the vaccination efforts ramp up. So besides being able to get vaccinated yourself, which is a nice, nice perk, um, what do you, Lynn, get out of vaccinating? As much as I love CDI, vaccination is really my reason for living right now.
7: Let me first say these mega clinics that we have could not be nearly as productive if it were not for our nurse volunteers and nursing students. Uh, For myself, I find vaccinating fun and really rewarding. It fills up your tank. People are so grateful. I had a woman the other day who had tears rolling down her cheeks. I think she was so relieved. Um, I also think we underestimate how emotional it can be for people. I want to make this a good experience for them. I want them (laughs) to come back for their second dose. I thank them all the time, and it takes a lot of courage for some.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. They're very grateful to us as well. I know that uh, they're they're always like, I'll have people who are driving past me and they're not even, I didn't even give them their shot and they're like, thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. Um, And I know that... um, our system is similar, but y'all do it very big in Texas. So we've been doing about 1,000 to 1,200 shots per day. And we have eight vaccination stations in a building that's at the county fairgrounds because we obviously um, are in what is known as the winter, which you guys experienced last um, week, and you can't really do it outside, uh, although there are a lot of folks who are volunteering who are working outside, and when I was doing it on Sunday, I was in recovery and I was outside, um, but what is, you know, what's it been like where you've been, like where? How, how are you guys running these mega clinics?
7: It's like any new system. It takes some trial and error. Um, I was not at the first, uh, the first very large clinic, but that one indeed finished at 11 p.m., so they clearly had some glitches. Um, The first mega clinic that I went to, we administered over 5,200 vaccines in nine hours, so they were clicking away at about 530 an hour. So what we have are three lines of six to eight vehicles, of course, in Texas, depends on how big the trucks and the hitches, and the lines run independently. Uh, We did try one clinic in an arena where we simultaneously vaccinated people in about 22 cars in a big circle. I felt this model was a lot less flexible, especially if one car is delayed. Um, You know, the other thing, Erica, the general population may not realize um, that we do not know how much inventory we are getting very far in advance. So these vaccination clinics and the manpower draw have to be really flexible and agile.
2: Yeah, I'll say, and I don't know if you have the same experience I have, but people are, like, uh, there frequently are other individuals in the cars, and people are always saying, like, do you have any extra vaccine? And the answer is, like, no, unfortunately, we really don't. But I'm really interested in the fact that your patients do not have appointments. So Our board, board of Health has a site where folks sign up for appointment slots in advance and they, they're supposed to come with their, and most of the time they do, come with their papers filled out. So the registration people validate their eligibility and confirm that they have an appointment and then we have a document or to each vaccination table who enters in the data or can look up information regarding the first dose that they prevent, present for their second dose and they don't have their cards with them. Um, Um, But how does it work if they don't have appointments? Like, how does your system work?
7: They've um, done different approaches. So they started with that online registration, but then the system blew out. Then they went to on-site, and that required a lot of registration people using iPads as cars queued up. So now they've moved to a hybrid. So now they do registration half by phone and half online. So this, they believe, um, assists with their digital divide that we have in our population, so those without or who have trouble with online access. Um, Specifically for the second dose clinics, though, they have a reverse alert system, and that will tell them specific time frames to show up. Um, And then for us with the fairgrounds and the huge buildings, they can run a first dose and a second dose clinic at the same time. It just requires a lot of volunteers.
2: That's so interesting. I wish we had that kind of space because it really is um, challenging to intersperse first and second doses. Sometimes what we do is we try to have the second doses all in the morning, and then we switch over to the first dose. And you have to be careful because people have to realize that once you've gotten your first dose, you are committed to whether it's going to be three weeks or four weeks and, and which um, manufacturer, you have to get your second dose from. So that's very interesting. So in Cleveland, we have the challenge of setting up these vaccination events in 20-degree weather right now. And it is very grueling for the people who are outside and registering and monitoring for adverse effects and directing traffic and so on. And when it, what we did was we actually borrowed um, from the uh, Cleveland Browns. They have these huge industrial streets strength heaters to try to keep these stationary documenters from becoming popsicles and having the vaccinators be able to move their hands, what challenges are you experiencing with your weather?
7: Well, it's nice of you to have access to those heaters. Um, boy, did we get a dose of that last week, and I do not envy you up there with that, those ongoing freezing temps. Um, come June, though, the roles will reverse. We had a taste of it in January. A digital thermometer showed up on my table, and it showed 75 degrees. An hour later, we hit 77. And that is the end of room temperature. And as you know, these mRNA vaccines are fragile. So the people who work at our tables took our extra inventory back to cooler locations, and they just had to do more frequent runs. So I suspect we'll be getting mini coolers soon. Lynn,
2: this has been so fascinating. I think it's amazing to hear what other people are doing, and, and i am actually, um, sh- I'll share with you guys that this afternoon, I'm going to be participating in a vaccination forum where what they're doing is it's like a town hall where people are sharing their best practices and um, being able to get their questions answered so that people are going to be learning from each other on how to do these systems, and I think that's really good that the administration is um, getting that going. Lynn, do you have anything else you would like to say to our listeners?
7: Real quickly, I would like to extend my gratitude to our public health workers and their support teams who've done a great job. Um, Just one last little thing. I do have a concern that vaccine hesitancy is going to be a problem. Um, Where I live, we are a majority Hispanic population, and I know that is a potential problem. So I'm hoping as time goes on, people will see that these vaccines are safe. And I'd just like to say to people, please, get your vaccination when it's your turn. Thank you.
2: Lynn, we really would like to thank you for being on and uh, sharing your story with us. It was really interesting, and um, I applaud you for your commitment to becoming a vaccinator. I think that we really need to be all hands on deck as the supply increases. We all need to make sure that uh, we're doing our, our share and I'm going to repeat what you just said and it's like hashtag get vaccinated. Chuck,
1: back to you. Thanks, Erica, very much. And thank you, Lim Comstock, for calling in live from Corpus Christi, Texas. That's gonna be a wrap for our 450th live edition of Talk to you In Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Susan Gatehouse, Dev Grider, Lori Johnson, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and our special guest, Lim Comstock. And as always, a special thanks to our co-host, Dr. Eric Reamer. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ic 10 and Talk Talkin' Tuesday. Thank you for being with us. And be sure to one, wear your face mask, two, wash your hands, practice social distancing. And, as Erica said, get vaccinated. It's very dangerous out there. Thanks for being with us. Have a great day.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.